And uh, if you do not get those first few weeks of notes, uh, next Sunday, next Wednesday night, my goal is to have all of the notes from the very beginning through tonight for you. Uh, that way you can put them in a binder or, or in the binder we've given you. Um, but this week has just been hectic with Selena not here. Uh, and I've been out of town for two days doing visits. It just wasn't possible. So uh, if you want to take notes tonight, uh, you're welcome to. But I don't have any fancy handouts or anything like that. But we have been looking at the church. And the Baptist faith and message is what we believe about the church uh, as a Baptist church. And what I told you was we were going to look at all of the verses that are under that article. And so we've just been looking at them. We started looking at what the church is and what the mission of the church is and, and what the church is to be doing. And, and then we spent some time on the leadership of the church and, and uh, what its qualifications are and all of those things. And tonight we're coming to really a passage of Scripture in this section about you, the body. Uh, what are we to be doing in regards to who are we? Not just what are we to do. What has God called us to do as individuals? What has God given us to accomplish that mission? And so if you have your Bibles tonight, uh, we're just going to be jumping through the New Testament, uh, starting in the book of Romans. And so if you're taking notes, I want to show you who we are. Uh, because sometimes people view church as just another organization. It's like the Kiwanis, it's like the Rotary, it's like uh, the Chamber of Commerce. It's just an organization uh, that has a mission and it's good to be a part of. Uh, but that's not what the Bible says. In Romans chapter 1, verse 7, uh, if somebody would read that uh, verse, I would greatly appreciate it. Amen. So we see here our position in Christ, that we are saints. Now, you and I have all probably been around church long enough, or taken a history class, or watched something on television, or took a vacation and saw a group or a place that called certain people saints. They did certain things, they had been a part of certain miracles, they had witnessed certain things, and so they were designated saints. But what Paul says here is, to all who believe in Jesus Christ, we are saints. We are in Him, we belong to Him, and we are not... Uh, a super level of believer because of what we have done, but because of who He is and what He has done in our life. That we are set apart. That the church is not made up of people who love Jesus, who might love Jesus, who don't love Jesus. You either belong to Him, you are a saint, you are a child of God, or you are not. You are an enemy of God. And so he says to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, loved by God, called to be saints. So who we are in Christ is the single most important thing that we have to remind ourselves as a church. That we are about telling people what it takes to be saved. That we are not a group that just hangs out together. We're not just a group that fellowships together. We are brought together by one thing. And that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. I love you because He loves me. You love me because He loves you and you love Him. And what happens in most churches is that's lost. It becomes a social gathering. It begins a gathering of people who have went to church so long that it's just what they do. 
But Paul says to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. And so when Satan tries to convince you that you have no value or that you have failed God too many times or how could God love someone like you, you need to be reminded that God views you as His own. Not as a super Christian who has accomplished all of these things, but you're His. And so every believer that believes in Jesus Christ, the Bible calls you a saint. And it's not because of you, it's because of Him. And when you look at this, he then says some of the benefits of being a saint. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace are something Paul says, I am praying this for you. I hope you're experiencing this, not just in your salvation, but in your life. The goodness of God. God's blessing, God's favor on your life. And we see this word for peace here, and sometimes when we read our Bible, we think the only people who are really blessed are those who are persecuted. But yet Paul says, I pray that you can have peace. I pray that you can have one peace that comes from Jesus, but if God chooses to, to give you a season of peace. And uh, I think that's something we struggle with because we look at the rest of the world and the struggle they have in their faith, and we look at them as superior to us because God has blessed us with the freedom to worship, the freedom to serve, the freedom to, to proclaim His name. And yet we need to remember something that God has given us this season for a reason. That season could change at any time. But I am going to continue to pray that God, if you give us a season of peace, I want to be faithful. God, if you give us a season of persecution, I want to be faithful. You say, well, what about church? I pray for seasons of peace in our church. You say, well, what about spiritual battles and spiritual warfare and spiritual fights? Yes, those come. But we ought to be thankful for the times of peace. Same way in marriage. You're going to have seasons of difficulty, seasons of friction, but you're also going to have seasons of peace. And we should want that. And we should pray for that. And we shouldn't feel guilty when God blesses us. But what we see from this is real peace only comes from a relationship with Him. Knowing that He's in control. Knowing that He is the one who fights my battles. Knowing that He is the one who's going to be with me through the storms. That my peace is not dependent just on circumstances, but that I can have peace even when everything around me is not peaceful. I can have peace even when everyone is against me. Why? Because I'm a saint. I am His. His grace has been given to me. His grace has been poured out to me. And peace is something that He can give us. And you say, Jake, I think this is just one instance of that. Well, flip over to Philippians chapter 1. I want to show you that this is a very standard greeting from the Apostle Paul. Philippians chapter 1, it's just a few books over. If you would like to read that, Philippians 1, verse 1 and 2, if you would. Philippians 1, 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, bound servant of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Jesus Christ who are in Philippia, 
with the bishops and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there he is. He says the saints. He's talking about the body of Christ. He then listens, lists the bishops, the elders, the pastors we've been talking about, the deacons. And what does he say? Grace and peace to you. Once again, he's setting this pattern of what he is praying and hoping for them. If you would, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's a few books back to the left. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. You'll see something very similar. And you can read verses 3 if you would like. 2 and 3. To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there again, the saints of God, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Not a special group, but all who believe are saints of God. And what does he pray for them again? Grace to you and peace from God our Father. But if you notice there, he's talking about those who are sanctified in Christ. Not because of our righteousness, but because of what Jesus has done for us. When you repented of your sins, and I repented of mine, His righteousness was given to me. Perfect righteousness, unblemished holiness, and He took my sin and my shame. And so we see this that we must never forget and we must never stop teaching that church membership and belonging to the family of God in the bigger picture is not something you are born into. It's not something that you work yourself into. It's something that only Jesus can do. Only Jesus can bring someone into the family of God. Only He can forgive of sin. And so, if you're here tonight and you are saved, I hope that is an encouragement to you to know who you are in Jesus and to know that God has a purpose and plan for you and that God does have things under control and that God does know what is coming. And so, thoughts? Like I said, I'm just working through all of these verses that is in the Baptist faith message. Well, if you'd like to, flip over to 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, verse 16. Not only who we are and what we enjoy, but what God views us as. What God views us as. If you were to read the Old Testament, you would find many a reference to the temple. Uh, the temple worship, uh, the temple mount, uh, the sacrifices, the ornaments, the de- uh, everything that went on about the temple. It was a sacred and special place. It was really the focal point of the Jewish people's worship in the Old Testament. It's where the presence of God resided in the uh, above the mercy seat and the Holy of Holies. It's where uh, the Jewish people went to offer sacrifices. And all of these things revolved around the temple. And we know that in AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, and uh, that that was no longer the case. But even in Jesus' day, after the temple had been destroyed before, we see things called synagogues, places of worship where the Jews would meet and worship God uh, because there was no temple like before. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
verse 16 and 17. If somebody would like to read those verses. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are So we see here that he is telling us that God resides in us. Now, not just in us, because we know that God is all places at all times. But when you get saved, something unique in the New Testament happens. I don't believe it happened in the Old Testament, but the Spirit of God, the very presence of God, comes to live within you. It's called the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And while the Old Testament Jew had to go to a place They had to go to a situation that the Spirit of God resides in us. And so it says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And it's really a warning, though, here in this passage of Scripture. It's a blessing for us to know this, but it's also a warning in verse 17. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And so when you think of the Old Testament and the temple being defiled, what would be some instances that came to mind? What would be some Old Testament instances of the temple being defiled? Whenever it was sacked? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. In Jesus' day, he uh, went in and did something to some tables. Uh, Brian Henderson did that on a Sunday night here, and, and some of you just about had a stroke, but uh, turned over some tables, right, and uh, drove out the money changers. And the list goes on and on. And even when it wasn't the temple, if you read the Old Testament, you will see that the Jewish people built altars. They built uh, places of sacrifice in the high places, and they would sacrifice not only animals, but they would sacrifice children, and they really just defiled the worship of God. But the temple itself was even more uh, of a defilement because that's where God's presence resided. Not that He wasn't everywhere, but that's where He had chose to reside. And so you need to remember tonight that the Spirit of God indwelling you is a special thing. It's something that the Old Testament saints didn't get to experience. But it is also something that should cause us to realize that holiness is important to God. That while we will never be perfect, while we will always sin and fall short of the glory of God, for those of us who have the Spirit of God living within us, the Spirit of God is going to convict us. He's going to deal with us. He's going to show us that our life and our sin is defiling the temple of God. Now, I don't believe that's because you cut your hair or because your dress isn't long enough. I, I don't believe that's what he's talking about here. I believe it is the sins of the heart, the sins of the flesh. Paul even says that about sexual sin. And so while we see the special sacredness of being a believer, we see the warning. And so questions, thoughts? Absolutely. And if you couldn't hear Dave, he was talking about Peter's denial of Christ, and then on the day of Pentecost and the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, he preaches this sermon, right? He becomes bold for Christ. But don't think that Peter became perfect, unlike uh, a certain church teaches the worldwide church. 
uh, because Peter, if you remember a few chapters later, Paul has to rebuke him because Peter is spending some time with some Gentiles because Paul's around. And some high and mighty Jews come showing up to town and what does Peter do? He starts pulling away from the Gentiles, right? He starts reverting back to that. Well, we're Jews in the flesh. And Paul says, I had to rebuke him, right? I had to, I had to challenge his, his way of thinking. So please do not think that just because the Spirit of God lives within us, that we will attain perfection. Now, I know there are some uh, Methodist uh, holiness movements, uh, some uh, Pentecostal movements that believe that God's people can achieve uh, perfection in this life but the Bible says it's not true. Uh, it even says that for those who say they have no sin, the truth of God is not in them. And so we have to be very careful when we teach the Word of God that yes, we are to be holy because He is holy. And holiness should matter to us. But yet we know that we're going to stumble and we're going to struggle and God is willing to forgive us. But what you probably see when you talk to people who call themselves believer is one of two extremes, right? You see the extreme of you have to be obedient, 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 right? And then the other extreme is just love everybody, right? Just love everybody. I was reading an article from Baylor University. Baylor University used to be one of the great Baptist colleges in the, state, in the southern part of the country. You say, well, Baylor's a football program. Baylor's a basketball program. Baylor's a school where Brittany, what her name went, that's in jail and... And Russia, and uh, but Baylor was started by Baptists to be a Bible teaching school. It brought some of the greatest Baptist preachers of the 1900s and the two and the, the 1800s and 1900s. But this week they are protesting at Baylor because Baylor, in their standard of of conduct, states one simple statement that marriage is between one man. One woman. And the article by the leading woman voice of the LGBTQ movement on Baylor University made this exact statement that God does not care if you are a Christian and a homosexual. God does not care if you are a Christian and trans. God does not care because God loves everybody. And everybody is going to go to heaven, and that's what we're fighting for at Baylor University. And I can promise you that Baylor will give. There's no doubt in my mind. I'm praying that they won't. I'm praying that they will stand firm. But you watch the articles and the donors and all of this going on, but that's the other side of that mindset, that God doesn't care. God doesn't care what you do or how you live. It does not matter. But what did this verse say? If anyone defiles the temple, who can defile the temple if I am the temple? Just me. I am the one responsible for my sin. Yes, other people can do things to me and sin against me and hurt me, but my sin is what brings the correction of God. And so I just really want you to see the blessing of being in the family of God but also the warning that God gives to each and every one of us. And so thoughts. All right. There is power when we gather together. There is power 
when we gather together. In 1 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, and if you remember when I preached through 1 Corinthians, the chapter was a big deal. Uh, the 5th chapter is where you start seeing a, a man and his father's wife. Uh, that was a 56-minute sermon that Sunday, and we went through every sexual sin in the Bible. And I believe that was the last time that I saw the altars totally and completely full in this place. God did some amazing things. Tore down some uh, walls that people had built with pornography, uh, some relationships that people were not being faithful in. They were convicted of and repented. And, and it was the sermon that I dreaded forever. Right? Because we talk about unbiblical marriage. We talk about uh, fornication. We talk about uh, divorce and remarriage. And all of these things. And as you know, it's a really wonderful topic to wade into. Uh, wasn't near as awkward as the one two Sundays ago about Amnon and Tamar, but it was pretty much at that time the most difficult sermon to preach. And in this chapter, we see here that, that Paul is talking about sexual sin. But look in verse 4, if you would, and if somebody would read verse 4 and 5, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in the name of Christ our Lord Jesus Christ, when we are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now I just want you to think about that for just a second. And the wording and the understanding behind this verse. Gathered together. In this context is when the church meets publicly, like we're doing tonight, like we do on Sunday morning, like we do on Sunday night, like you do in Sunday school, when the church gathers together. It says there, and I'll just read it very slowly, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're not coming in their own power. They're not coming in their own legalism. They're not dragging this person because they cut their hair too short. Right, they're not dragging this person to church because they didn't wear a dress or they, you know, they clipped their fingernails or whatever nonsense that some people think. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about this. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now if you have the MacArthur Study Bible, which I know many of you do, listen to what he says on his commentary on verse 5. Deliver is a strong term used of judicial sentencing. This is equal to excommuting the professed believer. It amounts to putting that person out of the blessing of Christian worship and fellowship by thrusting him into Satan's realm, the world system. The destruction of the flesh refers to divine chastening for sin that can result in illness and even death. The spirit saved, the unrepentant person may suffer greatly under God's judgment, but will not be an evil influence in the church. And he will more likely be saved under the judgment that it is tolerated and accepted in the church. Now today I talked with a pastor whose church is really struggling. And he said, Jake, I have got one problem. And I said, what's that? He said, I've got a person in my church who if we do not agree with him, he will argue with a person until they leave. And I said, hey, everybody's got some of those, right? Uh, no matter what your church is. But he says, no, that is every 
single person. And he just, there, we're dwindling, we're running down, we're down to pretty much nothing. And before I even thought, it, it just happens. I was tired, I was kind of grouchy. I was just, it just, same mood tonight, so just be cautious, all right? I said, well, do something about it. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, well, what do you mean? I said, you're the shepherd of the flock. Your people he's devouring? Do something about it. And I was eating a piece of cake, and it was very good, and it should have put me in a better mood. And it wasn't really cake, it was a brownie with pecan on it. Oh, it was so good. Oh. I only had one piece. And he said, well, I, I just, I can't. I, I just, I can't. And I said, you ought to expect this to happen. Because why? At some point, when the church begins to devour itself, someone has to stand up. Someone has to say enough. Now, do I believe you ought to drag everybody in church that makes a mistake? Absolutely not. I don't. Because, friends, we have got so many sins that we all struggle with. And if you brought everyone up before them, every time they lost their temper at a ball game, or every time they got mad in traffic, or every time they had a fight with their spouse, or every time they weren't a good witness at, at work, it would just be a constant legalistic mess. But when sin becomes so grotesque that it begins to destroy the church and the church's witness in the community, someone has to stand up. Now, I'm going to look at you and you're looking at me and ain't nobody want to do that. And I know ain't's not a good word, but it is absolutely fitting. I, Lucas and I were sitting uh, somewhere yesterday eating breakfast. I can't even... We were somewhere... Where were we? I don't know what the name of that was. Lucas was eating so much food I couldn't believe it. No, I'm kidding. That's not true. I ate more than Lucas did. I ate... I'm the one that ate the food. That is just... That is not true. I ate more than Lucas. That's the truth. Huh? Yes, yes, I'm the one, I'm the one that was eating all the food, and we were talking to a guy, and he was literally just talking about this simple thing. Well, this is the church that I was raised in, and there's nobody there. And I drove by this church, and there was nobody there. And I went by this, you know, that was this mindset, you just can't get people in church, you can't keep people in church, you just, you know, there's just no hope, there's no answer, there's no way. And, and I disagree. I believe until God removes His Spirit from a place, under His correction or judgment, that God can make a difference in the lives of people. I believe that. Because even though our church is not perfect, and there is a whole bunch of stuff that goes on that I would love to throw stones when I'm in the flesh. We're going to baptize a young lady that was saved on Sunday morning. All we really did was feed some migrant workers and prayed and prayed and prayed, and God used four Hispanic pastors that you will probably never meet to lead 18 people to the Lord. You know, you have to believe that we can be a part of God doing something. But at some point, we also have to recognize that it's not always just about the salvations. It's not always about just the exciting things. Sometimes it's the maintenance. Yes, sir. You're right. Yeah. But if you notice there, it says, in the name of. Right? They didn't just stand back and say, oh, Lord, you're going to do it. They got involved on some level. 
We've talked a little bit about that over the last couple Wednesday nights, about deacons and going one-on-one and two or three. But what we see here is there is power when the people of God gather in unity under the authority and name of Jesus Christ. And we have to believe that. Just like we believe that God can tear down the hardness of a heart that's lost, we have to believe that God can bring back prodigals. Those who have drifted from God. Those who are running from God. I know you've all heard me do the Lord's Supper many times, and you've heard me quote from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29-32, through 32, if you want to flip over there, talking about the Lord's Supper, worshiping God in an unworthy manner. Starting in verse 29. If somebody would like to read verses 29-32, through 32, I would greatly appreciate it. So just, we see here, and today uh, I went on a field trip with the 4th, uh, 5th, and 6th grade class of Dalgren Grade School to the bowling alley, and a young lady uh, was there who had a little bitty camera. I don't know what kind of camera it was, I'm not a real photogenic person, and we prefer not to be in pictures, and so, but this little girl to her, it was the most important thing she had. She didn't have a phone like the other kids, she didn't have a Nintendo Switch like the other kids. She didn't even have enough money to buy a soda at snack time. But she brought this camera. And it was important. Or she showed, look at my camera. I got it for my birthday. And, and I'm, it looked like, I mean, it, honestly, it looked like something that probably came from the dollar store. Very simple. But to her, it was everything. Well, as kids do, when we went to leave, guess what happened? The camera was gone. The camera was gone. And so we asked all those kids. I didn't because I'm not getting on to nobody when I sub. That's just the way it is, all right? I'm just there for the kids to have a relaxing day away from the mean teacher. No, I'm kidding. That's a joke. That's a joke. That's a joke. I'm just kidding. But, and we went through them and said, if you just tell us that you have the camera now, we'll know that you picked it up by accident. No one will get in trouble, right? Nobody will get in trouble. Well, it was amazing because the guy from the bowling alley at Mount Vernon goes, hey, what table was it on? I'm like, well, I don't know. I got cameras everywhere here. I'm like, man, wish I wouldn't have picked my nose. But, uh, you know, just being serious. And um, and he says, I'll get the camera and we'll find out who um, who took it. And so, like all good adults, we're like, I tell you what, we'll just go over here and talk. And kids, you look out for it one more time and see if you can't find it. And if, if you find it, no one's in trouble. But if we find out who took it on the camera, someone's going to be in big trouble. Well, you can imagine as the kids spread out and walk through there, the young girl comes back by and she goes, look, my camera's right here. Right out in the open. Not where she left it. Somebody recognized that the threat of punishment and judgment made them do what was right. And we do not do what we do because of our fear of God's punishment. But there comes a time in our life as Christians when we're living in sin that God says He will correct us. 
And that's what it says in this passage of Scripture. And so we just need to pray that God will convict and He'll work and people will yield to Him. But if they're really His, God's not going to let them go. And God's not going to let them run forever. And God's not going to let them wallow in their sin. Wallow? That's not right, is it? Wallow? Wallow, is it? Yes. I got the approval of Ann Johnson on English. I am arrived. She's like, but you said ain't. So... But we have to remember that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. It matters the life that we live that honors Christ. And so while we do not want to be legalists, we don't want to be Pharisees, we must never want to be on the other end of that spectrum where God is all love, God is all blessing, God is all, it's all okay, when truly He is a correcting, loving God. And that's part of being in His church. That's part of being in His family. You say, I don't like that part. Well, then there's a pretty good chance you're not a part of the family. You say, well, I don't want to be a part of this family. You don't have to be a part of this family. You can be a part of another church and still go to heaven. I believe that. But this is the God that we serve. And this is how He deals with His people. And we shouldn't apologize for that. People need to know up front, this is the God that we serve. And He knows what sin will do to your life, what it will do to your marriage, what it will do to the church. And He wants to change us. Questions? I know I covered a lot there, so please, 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 please. And I think that's why we have to be Spirit-filled. Because if we're not Spirit-filled, we're legalists. The Pharisees were all about it, right? They were all about correcting people, all around pointing out the faults and that Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors and and that that women of, of, of not great reputations... I mean, that's... That was their mindset was we've got to protect the outward purity of the church. It was. It was. And so that's not ours. It is in Christ alone, but that those who are truly saved, the Spirit of God is working. He is working in them and us. And so I just wanted to say that because when we jump into this next part about He's the head of the church, and He's the only one that matters, we have to remember that it is His, is his church. And He is the one who defends His church, protects His church, but yet there are times when He uses His people to stand in the gap. And so if you have Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, if somebody would, would care to read that, we've talked about our part to play in this but never forgetting who He is. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in all things He might have, that in all things He might have with the eminence. Amen. So He is the head of the church. It's His. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's not a priest. It's not a pope. It's His church. All right? And while we serve Him, and while we live for Him, it's His. It's not the deacon's church. It's not the trustee's church. It's not the pastor's church. It's not a Sunday school class's church. It's His. And anything with more than one head is a what? A monster. Anything with more than one head is a monster. And so you, I've heard people say, well, I've been at this church, preacher, longer than you've been alive. And Jesus has been the head of it since it was born. And He will be the head of it long after you are gone. 
If you see Ephesians, would flip there with me. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to show you that this is not... Uh, not just an isolated instance. In Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 22 and 23. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything and everywhere. Notice how many things are under him? All things. And that he is the head over all things. And so while it is so easy, and you say it's not here because we know you, that's probably true. But it's so easy to idolize people like David Jeremiah, Charles Stanley, Adrian Rogers, these wonderful pastors who God has used to preach and to minister and to be a part of great churches and great ministries. They are not the focus. No man is the focus. No man is the reason a church grows or a church thrives. And whether a pastor is there long, or he's there short, or he's old, or he's young, or he's a teacher, or he's a preacher, or he's a gifted visitor, or he's a gifted leader, it's Christ. It's His church. And so please, never elevate a man. Because if you elevate a man, God will take His legs out from under him. God will knock the pedestal out of our lives, or He will knock it out from under the people that we're worshiping. And so I just always want to encourage you to really believe that He is the head of the church. How many of you have ever seen a church that had more than one head? Oh, come on. One honest person? Yeah, all right, thank you. I appreciate that. So, it's real. So you have a local church that the Bible teaches, like in Revelations 2 and 3, and you have a global church, a worldwide church. And so that would be both. I think you have to view it in both sense. The, you, globally or locally? Well, the bride of Christ would be considered globally. Absolutely. And each local church is uh, how he ministers to them and loves them and cares for them and thus fulfills all those things that we're going to look in next week when we look at the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, right? Television preachers are wonderful, but you know when, when you need someone to come and pray beside your bed when your loved one's died of cancer, it's probably not going to be David Jeremiah. You know, it might be... Yeah, I am not a landmarker. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I am not a landmarker. And uh, so I would say that you have to go to what we just read in Romans 1, Philippians 1, 1 Corinthians 1, where it says to the saints and all who believe. Uh, they're in, uh, I think it was 1 Corinthians 2. So while I do like some of the ideas of landmarkism, I, I can't come to a point where I think there is a bride of Christ of born-again believers, for instance, missionary Baptist, and then there's a second group of saved people that are not in the bride of Christ. So I, I think that is there are verses that are used for that. I have the trail of, of blood in my office, the book that teaches that. I've got the map that traces it all the way back to, but I, I just I think that is a very 
I think it is a stretch, in my personal opinion, when I study the scriptures. I think there's more that supports the other option of that than, than that. But it is a very contested opinion, usually. You don't find people that are very uh, uh, understanding on either side of that, usually. So, but yes, I, I, I am not a landmark. So, And this church at one point was. Uh, and what that means is, for practical sense, was that if you came from a non-Southern Missionary Baptist church, your baptism wasn't valid. Um, you have to be rebaptized, and some of you probably remember those days. Uh, you couldn't take the Lord's Supper unless you were a member of this local body. And uh, and so while I place a very high view on church membership, uh, I just really I was raised generally Baptist, so that's probably a lot of not generally general Baptist. <laughs> And so that's where I would say that I was never raised that way. It was something that I was brought into later. And so it's not one of those things that I've been taught my whole life and thought this is, this is what I'm passionate about. We had, I had classes on it in seminary, and they debated it, talked about it. It's kind of like every other doctrinal in the Bible. You fight and argue over it, and no one changes their opinion. It's not. It's not. Yeah. So for me, it's not. So then that's got another person well, yeah, it definitely has a Catholic church, uh, but it's, I think it's because the Catholic church was so adamant that you cannot go to heaven outside of the Catholic church that when one extreme is, is embraced, the pendulum usually swings what? The other extreme, and it's, well, okay, anybody that ever started with the Catholic church can't be saved. And it's just got to be this group over here that came from the apostles and it came through this group and it came through the Moldavians and the and Anabaptists and so the Methodists, the Lutheran, all those churches that started in the Catholic Church are corrupt. And while I think those churches are all seeing the fruit of their um, unbelief, I just really struggle. None of the splinters that came off of that yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Oh. You know, yeah. I mean, Luther hated the Jews. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a pretty big one when you read your Bible that you really can't hate the Jewish people. So, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I just think you have to be very careful and that, hey, you can hold that view, but I am never going to be one that says, hey, you repented, you believe, you called upon the name of the Lord, that you're not in the bride of Christ because all of the promises of the New Testament are given to the bride of Christ. Right? And you can read that in, uh, we're going to look at that actually in the next couple of weeks. So, but yeah, I am not a landmarker while I do appreciate some of the the understanding of why. So, for instance, when you look at the Lord's Supper, at the first Lord's Supper, it was a very small group, right? It was the disciples. So I see why it was kept close, um, and, and et cetera. But I just, I really think, my motto is, if I have to really look to support what I believe and really pull from here and pull from there, I, that's, a, that's a dangerous footing. I want what I believe to be found everywhere. So hence why I'm trying to take you to Romans 1, Philippians 1, 1 Corinthians 1, to Colossians 1, to Ephesians 1, to show you this is not just one little verse. Because you can take one little verse and make the Bible say anything you want. I mean, you can go in the Old Testament and you can teach where, where God told Israel to go in and wipe out a whole city. And so, hey, we ought to just wipe out everybody. God doesn't care about life. Uh, you could, so I just think we have to be very careful. But I also don't want to demonize people who hold to that belief either. 
and say, well, you're not going to heaven either because man, that's a terrible view to have. So, then you're pleasing yourself as a judge. Yeah. So I, I, but I do struggle because it says that if you will judge yourselves, then God won't have to. And, and, I, and I don't surely know how I feel about all that yet because I'm still working it out in my own mind, okay? But it's like the, the story I told you today. As long as the person brought it back and admit to it, we're going to make it work. But I'm telling you what, if we'd have found it on that camera and that poor little girl had a soft spot in my heart because I knew to her it was like that one little lamb that David got talked about Nathan. This was to her the greatest thing she'd ever given, even though for most of us it would be something our kids threw. But to her, it was everything. And I think that's what we have to view it in our life. So, wonderful question. I hope I help, not just muddy the water. I understand. I understand. Yeah. I just have to understand that I most I'm not gonna be able to agree with everybody and everybody's not gonna agree with me and but then that brings the question though is but when he talks about the judgment here, he's talking about people that are saved, most likely. So is there a judgment for a lost person to take the Lord's Supper? Or is it just when saved people won't repent? I mean, like I said, you can just chase that all the way down the well, we're out of time. So thank you for discussion. Thank you for reading.